This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. Back in May, I was joined by Caroline Greenwell and Sam Lear to discuss the basics of how settlement offers work. For today's Property Patter, they're back here with me again today, and we're going to look at settlement offers in slightly more detail, including tactics and the impact that settlement offers can have on costs. So let's start with a refresher um, for anyone who hasn't listened to part one. Uh, Caroline, perhaps if you don't mind, would you do a brief recap of the differences between Calder Bank offers and offers made under part 36? Absolutely. Thanks, Emma. Um, so just, yeah, as Emma said, a little recap. Um, we talked about the fact that both types of offers, so Calder Bank, which takes its name from a case, and Part 36, which takes its name from civil procedurals, um, they're both types of offers that can be made without prejudice, save as to cost, which means they can't be shown to a court until after a decision in the main dispute. The idea is that the court will take into account the reasonableness of each party in attempting to settle the matter when deciding who should be responsible for each side's costs and to what extent. Um, that's really where the similarities end. There are a number of differences. Um, so just to, to counter through those. In relation to formalities, the requirements of Calder Bank offers are much more relaxed than those under Part 36. So Calder Bank offers have no prescribed relevant period, the parties can set whatever deadlines they like or leave it open-ended, whereas Part 36 offers must comply with the strict requirements. A Calder Bank offer is also allowed to incorporate an offer in respect of the costs of the parties, where a Part 36 offer cannot. Most significantly, they differ in respect of the cost consequences that flow depending on whether an offer is accepted or rejected. Um, the consequences with part 36 are prescribed by the rules and are therefore known by the parties when the offer is made and received. And essentially, as we discussed last time, part 36 punishes parties who turn down offers of settlement, proceed to trial and ultimately get a worse outcome. And in contrast to that, um, if a party doesn't accept a colder bank offer, it may well still be an important consideration for the court when considering the question of costs but the court is able to decide what weight to give to that. Um, so there is much more flexibility, but less certainty in relation to the cost consequences of the Calder Bank offer. So in a nutshell, that's pretty much what we covered last time. Brilliant. Well, I mean, as you say, it, it, they do have sort of slightly different roles, but um, they, they obviously a lot of similarities. Um, and certainly I think probably in terms of tactics, um, there are some similarities as well as to when you use them. Sam, when should a party consider making a settlement offer during a dispute? It will really will vary depending on the complexity of the case and how you know, ongoing the, the discussions have been between the parties. But you know, as a general rule, it's usually when litigation is threatened. Otherwise, there's nothing really to resolve before that point. But I'd say typically you you do want to have a good understanding of the strength of your case and the weakness of the other side's case and vice versa. And often that comes after the service of the statements of case. So I think historically we find that offers tend to be made after that sort of initial stage of the proceedings. But occasionally, perhaps for more straightforward cases, you might get offers beforehand usually when parties don't want to embark on 
the costly pursuit of litigation. And it's not just the financial aspect of it, it's also the emotional and the time aspect of it as well. So it, it can be at any point, but I think the more serious offers do tend to be made when the reality of litigation is staring the parties in the face. And with part 36, um, obviously, as Caroline alluded to, uh, it's a procedural matter. So those types of offers can only be made once the proceedings have begun, not beforehand. Yes, I mean, that's right. As you say, the serious offers tend to be made during the course of, of actions, but actually parties should always think about it beforehand, given, you know, the costs that are going to be incurred if, if you start litigation and, you know, very often you'd be worth, you know, taking the cost of, of issuing the claim off the amount you're willing to accept or something along those lines. I mean, one of one of the things I often suggest to parties if we're sending a pre-action letter and, you know, we're about to press the button, as it were, is is to say, well, let's, in the right circumstances, let's make a part 36 offer at the same time. You know, let's let's make this real for them as to what's likely to happen if if we do press this button and the costs, consequences they could face. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really good sort of move to make. Um, I'd just be slightly wary of the fact that the consequences are slightly different if offers are made pre-action. Um, and the rules are slightly vague on that. So I think it's safe to say it's, it's often a topic of conversation about what precisely will happen and the rules around pre-action offers aren't quite as um, satisfactory perhaps and I think there is actually some case law about um, the purpose and, and the outcome of, of pre-action part 36 offers so just something to be aware of there. Yes I'm always slightly surprised they haven't made the rules clearer on that um, but exactly. yeah um, and there can be of course some downsides when using part 36 or certainly points to think about carefully um so the thing i always think about and always flag up to clients is that you know if you're a defendant making a part 36 offer you are accepting liability to pay the claimant's costs and that's not always appropriate um i wrote an article about that in fact i think it's one of my first ever articles i wrote was about the fact that part 36 offers don't really work in an unopposed lease renewal proceedings it just doesn't really work you know you won't usually get the scenario where um, the land will pay the tenants' costs, or, or even indeed vice versa, in an unopposed, what well, is essentially an unopposed lease discussion negotiation. Um, so, what other implications do parties need to think about before making a Part Thirty Six offer? Yeah, sure. I think the thing I would say at the outset is that for all the certainty that it, that Part Thirty Six offers give, and all the rules that come with it, it's the the real lack of flexibility which is considered their downside. And I, I think that is often forgotten, um, so well worth a bit of a reminder. Um, as I sort of mentioned at the top, Part 36 doesn't allow a party to make an offer that is inclusive of costs or makes any specific provision for the payment of costs. That's just out of the question. There are fixed rules which take all of that flexibility away. And if a Part 36 offer is accepted, the parties have no control as to how their respective costs are dealt with. Um, likewise, if it isn't accepted and, and, and it's adjudicated after the, the main dispute, it, it's just a, an automatic provision that the rules kick in. So there is really nothing that you can do um, in your offer to give flexibility to the costs. And if you do say, you know, we'll offer X in respect of your costs, it's not part, of, not part 36 anymore. It's, it's probably the simplest way of putting it. Um, other points, um, if a party is making an offer to pay, it should really consider whether it has the financial means to do so immediately. Um, so whilst Part 36 offer can apply a great deal of pressure to the other side, they, they must be paid within a 14-day period. So that can create, create quite a, a burden on the, um, the offeror. 
Colder bank offers, on the other hand, can allow the paying party much more time to pay. That can be agreed between the parties. You could do it by means of instalments. So again, if you start trying to build that flexibility into a Part 36 offer, the chances are it won't be considered a Part 36 offer anymore uh, and the consequences fall away. Um, it also, Part 36 offers also can't be made subject to contract. So if accepted, it's, it's binding in exactly the form that it was made. So we would always advise parties considering settlement offers to think carefully about whether there are other terms, for instance, confidentiality, um, non-disclosure, which they would prefer to have agreed explicitly before they become bound. Um, and that's something that's often forgotten as well. Um, and lastly, I'd say that for cost consequences to be engaged, the court must be able to determine objectively whether the claimant, if it's a claimant offer, um, beat the offer at trial, which means that non-tangible aspects of an offer, so non-monetary provisions, offers to do something rather than pay something, can't form part of a Part 36 offer. Um, so if one party wants to offer some other form of benefit, it may find that uh, come you know, the time when the Part 36 offer is considered, the court may decide that it wasn't, it can't be a part 36 offer because it can't make that really objective assessment as to whether the offer was beaten at trial. Um, so yeah, so that's sort of a bit of a theory on it. And I think Sam is going to give us an example of, of how those downsides can really play out. Yeah, yes, absolutely. And Emma touched upon sort of unopposed lease renewals, which in, you know, from a real estate disputes context is a classic case because it's ultimately a, a glorified sort of negotiation between the parties. So when it comes to court proceedings, it seems a little um, uncomfortable to impose Part 36 uh, conditions and particularly the lack of flexibility as Caroline's just referred to for parties who are, who are genuinely trying to negotiate sort of subtle points within a negotiation. And which would normally, in the normal course of negotiations, be dealt with on, on each party's costs basis. It wouldn't be for one side to pay the cost of the other. We have seen recently that some uh, parties have been more aggressive and they are starting to make part, part 36 offers for unopposed lease renewals, but typically it's not, it's not to be encouraged or really appropriate and probably doesn't set a good tone for the rest of the landlord and tenant relationship thereafter. Yes, and then you've got also the issue of trying to say that the Part 36 offer has been beaten even if you did reach trial because you can't be subject to contract. Um, so obviously, the lease is quite important. <laughs> so you, you have to put the lease with your Part 36 offer to have a hope of saying that you've put forward all the terms. But uh, you can imagine that if you did reach trial and have a fight, there could well be terms that you know, get changed and then it doesn't match. And you know, has it been beaten? Absolutely. And what constitutes winning and losing in that, that sort of environment as well? It, it, it just doesn't work very well. And given the complicated nature of Part 36 offers, it just seems to be a waste of everybody's time to even think of going down that route. Yeah. And I think the courts more and more so seem to be really wanting to be able to see clarity between winning and losing. As you say, any ambiguity, they're not, they're not, they don't like it. 
Well, not least because there's some severe consequences, you know, as we touched on last time. So um, they, they have got to be quite sure that someone has actually really beaten it, haven't they? Yeah, absolutely. So are, um, I think the other thing that's we mentioned in terms of the, the topic of this is actually flexibility touches on your point you were making, Sam, about what you can build into your offer and understanding the other side has to be valid for at least 21 days. Of course, um, after that point, um, it can be withdrawn at any time if not accepted. CPR um, but you have got that 21 day period. It'll be quite a nervous period in a way as to whether your offer is going to be accepted and you've got to leave it open for all of that time otherwise it becomes non-par 36. Um, so the practical point to note on that is that it makes it really important to consider the stage of proceedings at which the offer is made. Um, so to give an example of the importance um, if a par 36 is made before disclosure and then documents are then disclosed which either hugely strengthens the offer's case or weakens it, um, you may find if that happens within those 21 days, you might be thinking, wow, the landscape is completely different now. I would never have made that offer if, um, if I knew this, you know, this document was going to, to come up. Um, so, and you can't withdraw until the 21 days has expired. So I, I think the point to note is to just be really, really careful about the timing and to always keep an eye on the direction of travel of a case or any new developments or you know, anything that you think might crop up in, in the next three week period and have in mind whether that would indeed be a sensible time to, to make that offer or not, because uh, you could well find yourself offering something um, that remains on the table, disclosure happens, the receiving party thinks, oh wow, you know, their case is completely collapsed because of this document. And a week ago, they made me a, a fantastic offer, and that offer can well be accepted. Um, so timing yeah, certainly can be. Um, and, and a lot of this is very strategic and um, quite technical. Um, so I, I think it probably is useful for our listeners if we put a bit of flesh on the bones and give some examples of just how useful offers can be. So I have asked each of you to pick your favourite case to show how effective a well-judged settlement offer can be. Um, so uh, who wants to go first? Give me a favourite one. I've gone for a call to bank offer that's that went wrong. And it was the case about five years ago uh, between Paul Burrell of Royal Household fame and Max Clifford, the, the disgraced publicist. It was a breach of a confidentiality case um, where quite typically the damages awards in such cases can be quite low. And in this case, the damages awards were uh, 5,000 pounds. And as we know, the costs of litigation significantly exceed um, such damages awards. Um, and that was very much the case here. And you know, as we know, the, the general rule is that the, the costs follow the events and the uh, loser pays the winner's costs. But when it came to determining this issue, uh, Max Clifford's team argued that they wrote a, without prejudice, save us to costs letter. So shortly after the statement case uh, phase, which pitched the offer at £5,000 for the damages, so it matched the eventual awards, uh, but crucially, it limited the costs to £5,000, which was inclusive of VAT in terms of costs. They then subsequently tried to argue that because of this, either Paul Burrell, the claimant, should pay either Max Clifford's costs for the proceedings thereafter, or there should be no order as to costs. 
But the court rejected this and they said that uh, what Max Kipperstein should have done was to pitch a Part 36 offer that uh, carried the cost of protection that it would have afforded, which the Colter Bank offer didn't. Um, there, there are a few reasons why Max Clifford didn't use Part 36, not least because of the conditional fee arrangement um, that was in place. And I don't want to go into the technical aspects of that, but they, they put forward some arguments as to why a Part 36 offer was not appropriate in this case. But not only did the Colter Bank offer not comply with the rules of Part 36, um, the fact that it limited its cost um, offer to £5,000 inclusive of VAT rather than it being linked to the claimant's costs as assessed based on proportionality and reasonableness. Um, it was an inadequate offer and the judge refused their arguments and therefore Max Clifford had to pay the costs of Paul Bowell, notwithstanding the offer that was made significantly earlier. But had it been a Part 36 offer, the result might have been very different and the costs exposure would have been significantly reduced. So I thought that was quite an interesting case, and um, but it's by no means Max Clifford's worst day in court. <laughs> That's brilliant, Sam. <laughs> I, I feel conscious now that mine doesn't involve any celebrities or disgraced publicists and the like, um, so apologies in advance. Um, the case that I've picked, um, I think for all the complexities we've discussed, I've gone for a case that really neatly demonstrates the strict nature of the Part 36 regime, no matter what amounts have been discussed. So hopefully it's interesting in that sense all the same. Um, it's a prime example of, um, quoting from the judgment, the sometimes harsh, brutal default consequences of Part 36. Um, so the case is a recent one, actually. It's from this year. Um, name, names won't be familiar to anyone. Shah and Shah, uh, 2021 case, as I said. Um, and in that case, the claimants had made a Part 36 offer to settle their claim for a nominal sum of £1 six months before the trial, um, at a point where both parties had incurred substantial costs, and as, as you can tell, with six months left to go, a fair way into the litigation. Um, the defendants did not accept the offer, and judgment was given for the claimants for a nominal sum of £10. Um, the defendants were ordered to pay the claimant's costs on the standard basis up to the expiry of the relevant period of the offer, and then on the indemnity basis from that date, together with interest on the sum awarded. Um, so it will be fairly clear that the sums we're talking in relation to costs will have far exceeded the one or ten pounds we're discussing in relation to damages. Um, the defendants appealed on several grounds. But the appeal court judge held that the trial judge had been entitled to find that the offer of £1 was a genuine offer to settle, even though it was only for nominal damages. He said, I am not too concerned about the fact that the Part 36 offer to settle for £1, uh, sorry, was for £1, whereas the judgment was for £10. The fact of the matter is that the claimants offered to settle for nominal damages, and that is precisely what they were awarded, having proved their case on breach of contract. Therefore, the judgment is at least as advantageous as the offer. Um, so it's kind of just a neat case, really, um, to remind us all of quite how harsh and brutal those default consequences are. And um, as we've touched on over, over this little series of, of settlement podcasts, if the technicalities are complied with, the criteria are all ticked off, 
um, you are in the market for huge um, cost consequences, um, even if we are talking of damages or of the amount. That's really interesting, Caroline. As you say, you know, a great illustration of how Part 36 works. Um, and, and it reminds me of a conversation I had with a client once about an opposed lease renewal, um, uh, where we were talking about whether we make a a part 36 offer for statutory compensation which is you know the that, that is what the tenant will be entitled to if we prove our case um plus one pound um <laughs> so there you go yeah so that's very interesting um well thank you both for explaining how useful settlement offers can be um, and some of the issues which need to be considered before you use them um, we will put the details of the cases which uh, Sam and Caroline have covered onto our website when we upload the podcast and our listeners will find lots of other useful information there also um, feel free to get in touch if you would like assistance with your settlement offers or uh, with any other issues but in the meantime thank you for joining us this is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast.